0: Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast delving into and analyzing acts of espionage throughout history, tracing the exploits of daring spies, covert operations, assassinations, hacking, secret organizations, and more. Co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover, thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. And without further ado... Let's dive into today's episode. The Bay of Pigs
2: Disaster. You say disaster because it's a disaster? You say that the end result was a disaster, if you're looking at it from the American side. If you're looking at it from the Cuban side, it was a huge success.
0: Great success, but let's find out why. From an well, intelligence point of view, it was a disaster for the Americans.
2: The, if, but if you look in the Cuban, We're
0: supposed to be talking about this after the dramatization, Dad. <laughs> April 15th, 1961. Two days before the Bay of Pigs invasion, two shot-up Cuban bomber planes make emergency landings in Miami and Key West, Florida, radioing ahead, pleading to be allowed to land. The pilots were anti-Castro-Cuban defectors, having stolen planes and bombed military targets in Cuba before flying to the U.S., only making it out by the hairs of their skin. They were part of a revolution to overthrow Castro. The people of Cuba fired up and ready to take down their leader turned oppressor and bring democracy to the country. Now was the time to act. Except that was all a lie. They were no defectors at all and their shot up Cuban planes were fake. Set up by the CIA, their plane parts shot with bullet holes to look like they were attacked when really, they flew up to Florida from Nicaragua, part of a vast CIA plan for the Bay of Pigs invasion. But was it a good plan? Let's find out. Now you can criticize the plan and talk about how it was a good plan for Cuba and not so much for the United States Intelligence Agency.
2: Well, I was, when we, we, we were thinking about talking about the Bay of Pigs. And I thought there's two angles to it. One is the Cuban side. How do they react and how do they perform? And what is the American side. Most people concentrate on the American side because it was a failure. and We know and it's, we're not going to make it a mystery to anyone. It is a failure. But I would like to look as well in this episode a little bit about the Cubans and how they succeeded because I think that angle is not really being so publicized that much. Absolutely. So I think, so I think one it'll side's be
0: failure is another side's success.
2: Uh, sometimes, but in this case... They go together. Well, so, we have
0: to, we, what we're, we're going to find out is if the failure on the American intelligence side was due to a great success on the Cuban side, or if perhaps their own incompetence in certain things or mistakes made.
2: It was a disastrous from the American side, yes. but they took advantage by the Cubans.
0: Yes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, as we often do. Okay. <laughs> So, what we're talking about is Cold War time. We've already done a couple uh, bits on the Cold War so far, but a little refresher. The Cold War began at the end of World War II, and it lasted essentially until 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Of course, some might say the Cold War Soviet is Empire?
2: Soviet empire. empire?
0: Well, the Soviet Union. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it was a, an empire of, a of sorts. Union? No,
2: Soviet Union. <laughs> Okay, sure.
0: They like don't the believe Roman in Empire. emperor. Well, they don't believe in emperors because exactly. they're communists, but essentially we we both know and people know that uh, the heads of the Communist Party in Soviet Union were essentially emperors of old. So Cuba was 90 miles away from the Florida Keys making it extremely close to the United States, which is important because when you have someone so close to you who may be an enemy or maybe harboring those darn commies as the U.S. liked to call them back in the day, that's a, that's a big problem. Enemies are fine if they're far away, but when they're close, it's a little scarier. In 1959, Castro took over Cuba. Now, when I say took over, I mean an armed military overthrow, of course. Now, the previous leader was called Batista, and he was essentially a dictator under U.S. influence, with 70% of the land in Cuba owned by foreigners. Castro, at first, tried to maintain relations with the U.S. He even traveled there, but he didn't get a meeting with then-President Eisenhower, who sends his vice president, Nixon, yeah. The I am not a crook, Nixon, that we all come to know. Instead, Nixon assessed Castro as a charismatic commie who would need to be dealt with. You're already rolling your eyes at all of my joking on such a serious matter. Correct. (laughs) Okay, great. The CIA also met with Castro, assessing him as a spiritual leader of anti-dictatorial forces. At least, that was their thinking at the time. As well as their thinking of him as being more democratic. The CIA even saying they wished to set up a network with him to feed information about communist activities in Cuba to quell them. Castro at this point wasn't particularly a gung-ho communist of any sort. No, he wasn't.
2: That was one of the big mistakes they made. It was one mistake after the other that
0: led everything to happen. Exactly. And one of the first big mistakes happened in 1960 when the US cut ties with Cuba, or began to cut ties anyway, as Cuba began enacting policies to redistribute the land and wealth away from the foreigners to the poor rural Cubans. How could they? This was bad for US business. Cuba was nationalizing its industries, which is more of a socialist tendency, but why did they do this? Well, there were economic incentives that were driving a wedge. If your country is 70% owned by foreign entities, that's not good for your country. That makes sense. But particularly, there was an occurrence where a Soviet oil tanker arrived at Cuba and needed to have its oil refined. Now. The people in charge of the oil refineries in Cuba were American companies. Castro wanted the companies to refine the oil. The companies, it's just business, they were happy to do it. But because it was Soviet, the US government pressured them to refuse. When this happened, Castro did the natural thing that you would do as a leader of a country. He seized the refineries and nationalized them. Of course, this began a chain of events of more problems along this line of standoffs between the government and privatizing and industries, and eventually President Eisenhower decides that Castro is bad for business, imposing embargoes after Cuba continues to nationalize other industries.
2: You could say that that one act of the refineries started the whole chain event that brought it to where it was today, or where, where it is now, or where it was then. One, one decision. Yeah. Yeah. Or you
0: could say that it was the fact that Eisenhower decided not to personally meet with him and set off a little no, bit of animosity. No, but I think the
2: refinery thing really made a big difference. Sh- sure.
0: Huge. Anyway, the CIA is authorized under President Eisenhower with a $12 million budget, which is a lot of money back then, to start recruiting Cuban exiles. A lot of Cubans fled Cuba when Castro took over, middle class predominantly, fearing that their businesses would be taken, et cetera, et etc. So they began recruiting Cubans as a force to overthrow Castro should the time come. They called themselves Brigade 2506, after the identifying number of the first member to die during a training accident, which perhaps was a sign of things to come. 1,400 people eventually signed up to Brigade 2506. They were a paramilitary Cuban force that were trained by the CAA, initially in Florida, but later in Guatemala, Nicaragua, and all sorts of other kind of fun little places all around the world. This began a long series of attempts, also by the CIA, to try to assassinate Castro, including apparently a CIA-alleged plot to hire the Cosa Nostra, which is the Italian mob, to take out Castro in exchange for exclusive rights for gambling and alcohol in Cuba should Castro die. Again, it's all economics. They just wanted him gone and then do what you want with Cuba. With you have Cuba. to
2: remember that before Castro, the mob had a, a big say in about and what was going on in Havana. Americans used to go there for gambling, for the, for gambling prostitution, yeah. drugs, drinking. Everything was available, and the mobs uh, and the mob enjoyed it, liked Absolutely. it, and had a lot of businesses, and a lot of investment to the detriment of the Cuban people. Who? Yes, and that was one of the problems. That's why uh, they were happy to. It was. Let's put it this way: they were happy to. Overthrow the, the regime, and I knew there was a lot for them to gain out of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, there's one person that we have to highlight here, who is Richard Bissell. Now, he was the CIA Deputy Director of Plans. And he was essentially the man mainly responsible for the Bay of Pigs planning. Brigade 205 was even referred to occasionally as Bissell's Battalion. Now, Bissell ran a successful coup in Guatemala in 1954. However, this coup could be said that had more to do with luck than skill. It was poorly orchestrated, but succeeded nonetheless. Nonetheless, a success is a success, and encouraged him, perhaps, to follow similar plans with Cuba. Him and his team, who worked on the Guatemala coup, were now the ones in charge of the Bay of Pigs operation. So what happened? To hide their involvement and give plausible deniability, the CIA planned to launch an invasion from Nicaragua when the invasion would actually come. Contacting the president there, Luis Somozas, who was reluctant uh, to allow this to happen for fear of uh, pushback from the international community. But of course, a small, little, you know, generous donation of $10 million eased things, which I'm sure went to all the people of Nicaragua and not to um, of course it his pocket. Of course it did, right? Yes. Yeah. Was convinced him. And this is done. The CIA also helped put down an attempted coup in Guatemala against the government that they helped support and use the country as a staging ground to also operate from. Eventually, their expenses were ballooning to $40 million plus and very, very expensive. Now, in the summer of 1960, Castro admitted publicly for the first time to anti-government groups and activity in Cuba and that there were efforts taking place within Cuba to destabilize and sabotage Castro's regime. Now, remember, Castro came to power only the year before, and the year later is when the Bay of Pigs occurs. This is all pretty quick when he comes to power and figuring things out. He was saying that there were guerrillas operating in Cuba, which Castro actually personally took charge to lead the fight against. He was a lead-from-the-front kind of guy.
2: He was a military guy.
0: Absolutely. That's how he overthrew uh, Batista to begin with. In September of 1960, Castro actually attended the UN in New York. And there, he met with the USSR's leader, Khrushchev, who was the head of the Soviet Union. On September 26th, Castro announced at the UN that the US intended to overthrow him and that they were training an army to do so, and also interfering with Cuban internal affairs.
2: Well, if you're looking at it from the Cuban point of view, how does he know this information? If you have 1,400 Cubans training somewhere, they have still families in, in Cuba. The first thing they'll do is start talking, chatting, discussing... These things can't stay secret. Well, we've said so, this
0: many times now, but you can't keep a secret. <laughs> exactly.
2: So, obviously, he had people there who, or he got the information randomly, just listening to people at home, or had people in the ground on the ground telling him the information, bringing him the information. I would assume both of them. Both we them, even have to more think things.
0: about the scope of the CIA's operations. They're hiring the Italian mob. They're doing well. The Italian and
2: that. mob. I'm, we're looking at it now from the Cubans. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. But, the, but the my point is, angles. there's so
0: many different things that something might have filtered to him that they're the, trying but to overthrow the,
2: him. Yes, but the Cubans' angle is much stronger. Why? Okay. You have families still in Cuba. You talk to them. If you listen to the phone calls, and then you are listening to phone calls, or you'll hear the mails or letters coming from places. All of a sudden, there's. Letters probably coming in from uh, Guatemala. They open them up. We're training. We're doing this. We hope to to see you soon, uh, whatever. Then there's, okay, let's try and recruit someone to there. Let's see what's going on. So you could say that he was one step ahead always of the Americans from the point of view. He knew what was planned, and he knew what was going on, and he had this information. And did the Americans uh, react to that? Did they realize that Castro understands what's going on? Yes. Did they react to it? Maybe. But how did they react to it? Probably not so good, because the re- outcome showed that it wasn't so, so good. So that's from a Cuban point of view. From the American point of view, here on, in the UN, Castro is telling everybody about the secret plan of the Americans. So the Americans now have a couple of pos- opportunities. One, first of all, to deny. Of course, they deny. To c- scrap it and shelve it, or say to themselves, we'll continue, but deny our involvement and that weakens the plan. And I think that's the route, and that's the route they went. So. You okay uh, there? Sap <laughs> funny on your leg? Yeah, something. Yeah, right there An old war wound? <laughs> an old war wound? Old um, wound. So we'll see what happens, but uh, obviously, not good news for the Americans.
0: At the end of 1960, Castro announces on Cuban television that the U.S. intends to invade Cuba. He says they plan to do this before President Eisenhower will leave office, mobilizing his militia in Cuba. And on January 10th, 1961, JFK takes office, John F. Kennedy. He takes office in the United States as President of the United States on a platform that has a hard stance against Cuba. Now, this means that the invasion didn't happen before Eisenhower left office, but what it also meant was that jfk inherited all of the plans for the invasion not his plans eisenhower's plans
2: the biggest issue here was eisenhower is a military guy
0: much yes kennedy isn't
2: he is a military kennedy is a military guy but he's not a military general eisenhower was a a general so it's a different outlook world war ii vet yes well kennedy was as well but from a different angle yes second new administration new people new issues to deal with and a strong cia or a head of a CIA who has its own agenda. It's not someone who's been in office for four years already and, and knows all about what's going on and what mm-hmm. what the real story is. He accepts what he's told, and that's one of the, the downfalls of this, because yeah. that's what happened.
0: Yeah, accepts what he's told, and it's a lot right off the bat. Yes. you know He inherits a lot of stuff going on in the world, difficult time, rising tensions, all sorts of stuff. He takes over, and he inherits the Bay of Pigs operation, basically. It was already planned. Yes. More than that, they had 1,400 Cubans trained in Guatemala. They had to do something with them. Well, or not they only could that. have been
2: trouble. You didn't mention it, but obviously it's, it's, it's a well-known fact that it wasn't just overthrowing the government. They already prepared a government in exile. Yes. They we, we, we won't go into it so much. And, and they, yeah. so they already did more things. So there was much more talk and commitment by the Americans to do something. And these people are waiting for something to happen. Yes. Now, obviously, people are waiting for something to happen who are voters and when you it promise, a, when you promise something, that you're going to be
0: hard on Cuba, exactly, you're going to do something. exactly.
2: So you have to fulfill it.
0: Nonetheless, once JFK took office, there was a brief de-escalation, a brief easing of tensions, and the Cuban militia demobilized. JFK's cabinet was young and lacked experience, as we said. They deferred to the veterans. JFK was not 100% committed to the operation— But, you know, it was presented before him as this is what's happening. This is everyone's already agreed. Eisenhower, the hero of World War II, he's agreed to this. It's a good plan. You should agree to it, too. Now, he agrees tentatively, but with the right to call it off if needed. He also whittles away at the plan. There was initially the intent to have this grandiose invasion at an area of Cuba called Trinidad, and not to be confused with the actual Trinidad-Tobago, which was a part of the the beach. It's a different kind of area in Cuba. That's where they wanted to initially assault Cuba from. But JFK's State Department felt that there were too many witnesses there that could see that the U.S. was involved. So, the invasion was moved to a deep, narrow bay known as the Bay of Pigs. Also, they moved the invasion to take place before sunrise, even though no one could remember the last time any major invasion succeeded in the dark. Of course, that's not to say it can't in the future, but if you look at the past, it's often a good indication of what will come in the future. The Bay of Pigs, however, was also Castro's favorite fishing spot, and he knew the area very well. He even improved the lives of the peasants living there significantly, so there was a lot of support for Castro there. Now, they only discovered that particular bit of information after the invasion, but if you're going to invade somewhere, you should do some research, right? Correct. Not only that... The Bay of Pigs eliminated the CIA's Plan B if the invasion was repelled. Because on the Trinidad landing, the exiles, the brigade, could have escaped the surrounding mountains. Not only that, those mountains were known to have anti-Castro sentiments. There were resistance there. There was a lot of people in Trinidad. The Bay of Pigs, on the other hand, was surrounded by impenetrable swamps. Also, it was not particularly populated. And as we've just heard, the population there was much more Castro-friendly. In spite of all this, the CIA was convinced that a popular uprising would occur in Cuba to support the invasion. This popular uprising never came. Perhaps they were swayed by all the Cubans in Florida saying how much they hated Castro. But those were not the Cubans in Cuba. The British ambassador to the United States even told them that their British intelligence, which was made available to the CIA said that the Cuban people were overwhelmingly behind Castro and there was not any great likelihood of mass defections or insurrections. And if you think about this, it makes a lot of sense. Before Castro, under Batista, 70% of the property owned by foreigners, most of the Cubans, farmers, poor, Castro comes to power, redistributes, lifts them up, gives them good stuff. Yes, of course there are going to be the Cubans in the middle class or the upper class who are not happy. Freedom's being taken away. Not happy. They flee. They this. But the vast majority of the people are not the urbanized Cubans. who are the farmers, the peasants in the other areas who he's done nothing but good for.
2: Remember the first episode we did? Sun Tzu. Sun yeah. Tzu. What the basics of intelligence is, understanding what the people are saying, having a lot of agents on the ground, telling you what's happening, mm-hmm. how they feel about things. And how many years has gone by between that and, and this case? Yeah,
0: well, there were four types of agents, and the first type of agent was more like the people. Exactly. Understand the people. Understand. Then understand the elites. Exactly. And they weren't
2: listening to the people. Exactly. Understand what the people are saying. Understand if there's any, any merit for your try, attempted coup or takeover. If you're not going to have any support, you can't take over a country with 1,000 people with no support when you're going to be stuck. Now, if, you, if you're planning... That someone's gonna the moment you arrive and you put a flag in there and you say, We're here, and then everybody's gonna stand up and say, Hooray, let's follow you and take over the government, that's a different thing. It happens in some places and it did. Not in this case. Right. But if you have this information in the history of the place. If you have this information and you ignore it, then you're in some ways you're you're doing disjustice to your to your own professionality. Absolutely. If you don't have the information, then again, you're not doing your work properly. Starting an operation where you know that you're not going to have support, you don't do it. Starting an operation where you think you have support and you don't have is criminal.
0: It's it's so critical. We said, you know, bringing back Sun Tzu is like the first agent, you know, is the people, understanding the people. And they didn't understand the people. And they lacked a mass propaganda campaign across the country to inspire an uprising. Part of this was due to the fact that there was an iron grip on the media in, in Cuba by Castro. And, Funnily enough, there was even a radio station in the Bay of Pigs that was broadcasting events as they occurred minute by minute. Everyone in Cuba knew that the people were invading the Bay of Pigs. Of course, it was Cuban radio and Castro's radio talking about it, but, you know, it
2: didn't help. There was another angle. Uh, che Guevara. Castro's ally. Castro's ally was calling for the people to arm themselves. The militia, that's what happened before, yeah. And that the, the Americans are going to try and invade, and everybody should have uh, weapons, and protect themselves. And people volunteered in huge numbers. Another yes. sign that the popularity for Castro and his regime at that period was so high yeah. that there was not going to be any chance that the people were just going to join the amount of people who just landed on the beach and try and take over the country.
0: Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, he called it the militia when Eisenhower was still president. Say, we're going to be invaded and huge amounts of militia. And it's, again, bad intel. So... There was, however, also pressure to the CIA for them to act because they had intel that there were Cuban pilots being trained abroad. Now, if these pilots finished their training and came back, that would pose a much greater threat and danger to any potential mission to try to overthrow Cuba. So they had to act quick before these pilots were ready. On April 4th, the CIA urges JFK to approve the invasion. The joint chiefs of JFK's staff agree only if they have control of the air. Critical. On April 5th, JFK decides to move ahead with the modified plan. On April 12th, however, JFK has a press conference saying, First, I want to say that there will not be under any condition an intervention in Cuba by the United States Armed Forces. This government will do everything it possibly can to make sure there are no Americans in any actions inside Cuba.
2: Well, it's a giveaway, isn't it? Looking at you know,
0: he's literally agreeing the plans and this and that. He's actually
2: saying, we're going to invade, but we're not going to use our forces. And basically, don't worry. It's, it's not, it's...
0: The crit- critical is the yeah. last line. Government will do everything it possibly can to make sure there are no Americans exactly. in any actions inside Cuba. We'll do everything it can. Not, we're not going to do it, <laughs> but we're not, we're going to do everything we can so that the Americans are not involved directly. So, it's interesting. That was April 12th, okay? April 15th. 1961, three months after Kennedy has taken over as president, the CIA sends bombers to strike Cuban airfields before the invasion, the bombers painted to look like Cuban military. Eventually, two of whom landing in Florida under the guise of defectors who stole planes of their own volition, just like I said in the opening. However, we know the truth. It was all part of the plan. Now, what the uh, Americans didn't know is that Castro knew this was coming, and he had spread his own aircraft across the country, and the U.S. bombing did very little to hinder his um, air force capabilities. Most of the Cuban planes were undamaged during the raids. Americans didn't know this, however. The next day, in the U.N., the Cuban representative vehemently says, "...the vandalistic aggressions carried out against the political independence of Cuba, the responsibility of this act of imperialistic piratry, falls squarely on the government of the United States of America." He was pretty sure he knew who was responsible, not some Cuban defectors. Of course, the U.S. denied this. Their ambassador denied this to the UN. The ambassador, unfortunately, had no idea that this was, in fact,
2: um, the truth. He wasn't told. It's, and not, it's not the first time that you bring false information to the UN and <laughs> you found out that it's not real. But in this case, it was the Cubans were one step ahead. They, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly who was behind it. But more than that, they the didn't world have knew. to hide it and it should have been another warning to the americans and this is where they this is actually where they should have stopped and they didn't that was the the biggest mistake they made at that at that stage
0: well they did stop they didn't do two more planned air raids before the attack but they didn't stop the invasion
2: i mean you said earlier and, and maybe we're jumping jumping guns but you said earlier the condition was air supremacy
0: air supremacy that is what they agreed
2: yes without that it cannot work They thought they got their airfields, though. No. no. So they didn't get it. They didn't have it and still went ahead. Correct. That was the biggest mistake. Correct. Because that was the downfall.
0: But here's the problem with that whole fake plane defector story, right? The CIA painted the planes, did the gunshots, the bullet holes, all this good stuff. The U.S. ambassador denied all this stuff. Except the problem was the details of the planes were wrong. And the vastly publicized pictures that he was flashing in the U.N., look, these are defectors, defectors they didn't have the right forward-mounted guns that Cuban planes had. So uh, it was very obvious that they weren't Cuban planes. The photos were publicized to the world. And very quickly, the world realized this was all a bunch of stinking doo-doo. Never heard of that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was an outcry, of course, against the bombing. And JFK calls off the two other planned bombing runs that were supposed to target other airfields and things. However... The troops and leaders of the brigade were not informed of this. They were not informed that they were not going to have the air supremacy that they were promised. Of course, the CIA knew. But the little guy down the ground didn't need to know. No. Days before the Bay of Pigs, Castro arrested thousands of political dissidents, which vastly reduced the chances for an uprising to occur because anyone who might have joined that uprising or led that uprising was now in prison, pretty much. The timing of the arrest possibly indicated that Castro knew exactly when the invasion was going to happen down to the day.
2: Again, looking at it from the Cuban side, he he had all the information he needed. He acted accordingly, and it was very accurate. Perfect.
0: Cubans, great intel, yes. doing exactly what they're doing perfectly. Yes. The operation itself occurred on April 16th, 1961. It began with a false invasion at the Baha'i Honda, which is another beachfront in Cuba. Boats with loudspeakers and a small strike force causing confusion and maybe making people think that's where the invasion was going to come. They had requested to have uh, major sonic booms dropped over Havana, which was a successful kind of psychological warfare tactic that they used in Guatemala. Remember, Bissell was the guy in charge of uh, Deputy Director CIA Bissell in Guatemala. But this was denied by JFK because it was too obvious that the U.S. was involved. Who has sonic booms except for the U.S.? So that wasn't allowed. On April 17th, the actual official invasion began as Brigade 2506 staged the coup at the Bay of Pigs against Fidel Castro. Within 72 hours, however, it had completely failed. The majority of the fighting was over, in fact, within 24 hours. At first, there was some initial success. They seized the beach with the troops and six light tanks. They had eight B26 planes disguised as Cuban planes providing support. But of course, they didn't have air supremacy, because Cuban fighters soon appeared and took out several of the B-26 planes, as well as destroying their supply ship and their communications ship. Confusion with the planes, all being painted as Cuban planes, led to some friendly fire occurring as well. Of course, the Cuban Air Force wasn't even supposed to be there. They weren't supposed to have the planes to fight back. Castro personally goes to the front lines with his troops. Cuban tanks are finally brought in once the air support of the CAA's force and the brigade were gone. And the brigade was pushed to the sea with no help coming. There were, however, several units of Marines in the vicinity of the Bay of Pigs doing maneuvers around the waters there. Now, some have claimed and thought that this was all part of the plan between the CIA to try to go to JFK into the conflict. You know, hey, Kennedy, there's, there's some Marines here. We could just send them over, you know. But... JFK did not approve deployment of the Marines into the conflict, nor additional air support, officially. There was a little bit of air support that we'll talk about later. Kennedy feared kicking off World War III if he deployed U.S. troops directly. He was also told continually that the force of the Cuban resistance fighters, the brigade, would be enough, along with the internal uprisings that would likely and most obviously occur in Cuba, to overthrow Castro. Again, didn't happen.
1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: At 2 p.m. on April 18th, JFK received a telegram from Khrushchev stating that the USSR would not allow the U.S. to enter Cuba, implying swift nuclear retribution if the warning was not heeded. Now things are heating up. He's scared. He's not like Eisenhower. He wasn't a big general in World War II. It's three months into his presidency, and things are getting scary. In the US, JFK is attending a grand party at the White House when he slips away to a conference with the CIA Deputy Director Bissell, as well as other heads of the operation and his staff. He asks to be allowed to deploy US troops, just like he did in Guatemala. The situation was doomed without support. At least provide air cover, air support. An admiral in the conference, representing the Pentagon, favored intervention. The Secretary of State opposed. The risk was too great. A threat to the entire Latin American position. It would open the door to USSR intervention, or worse. JFK said he would give the answer in a few hours. At dawn, he replied, no intervention. He explains once again that he was told that the Brigade 2506 and anti-Castro forces would be enough to overthrow Castro's position. It was still day two. They still had a chance. But on April 19th, the resistance finally ended. Those not killed in Brigade 2506 were taken captive. Despite massive disadvantages, 118 of Brigade 2506 and anti Castro fighters were killed, while the Cuban forces lost 176 soldiers and 500 to 4,000 militia. Unknown exactly. 1,200 anti Castro rebels were captured. Among them, 1,000 were U.S. citizens. Eventually, an exchange was organized and arranged for uh, $54 million worth of food and medical supplies provided by private companies, not the U.S. government, because that would show that they were involved. This is considered one of the CIA's greatest failures and misjudgments in the history of the agency.
2: Just I want to to stop here for a moment. Again, looking from the Cuban side, I thought it was a brilliant move by Castro, uh, how he handled the whole affair. It was. And another angle of it that was, in my opinion, very clever... Well, basically, he could have executed the guys. They were not prisoners of war from the point of view. They're not military guys. Exactly. They it was were, a coup, It was insurrection. Like, they yes, were Cuban usually citizens. You, usually, you, you, you put them on trial and then execute them and to, to show everyone what the punishment is for your own citizens if they go against the government. Yes, so some of them had American citizenships. So what? But there were two things here, three things you could say that were, that were interesting. One, he used them as bargaining chips later on. Mm-hmm. That was a clever thing because he, then he could use it. Second, he has the opportunity to um, help his economy by getting something for it. And third, not having the families go against him that are still in Cuba if he executed their people mm-hmm. and showed what kind of person he is. So he, I'll it put was, a
0: fourth to you. Send him back to the States and they're very upset at the United States for not helping them even more.
2: Yes, but they're very grateful to the Americans that, that, uh, that uh, took them back and, and were re- released him from prison. But that's not the main issue. The main issue is that he showed that he was not vindictive, that he was able to handle it, and that even though these people came to overthrow him, he was too strong, and he was able to make a decision what to do about it without harming his own people.
0: Let's not sing his praises too much. He did, of course, execute some of them. Some of them disappeared. He didn't return all of them. Well, well, it wasn't a whole cloth forgiveness here.
2: No, but it's still a lot of people to be returned. Absolutely. On the whole... Each one of them who landed on the beach should have known that if he gets captured, he probably doesn't come out alive. And actually, they did. And if over a thousand were returned, yeah, it's... it's so from that angle, it's, it is an important thing.
0: Yes, Absolutely. Now, you see, Castro and the Cubans actually used the Bay of Pigs as propaganda and a rallying cry for the Cuban people. It solidified Castro's hold and support among the Cubans, uniting them against the United States. Che Guevara, in fact, later would thank Kennedy for the Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, saying that without it, they were weak. But after it, they became strong and unified. correct. Give people an enemy, and they rally behind... What was the aftermath? What did they learn? Was the failure planned from the start? Did the CIA know it was gonna fail? Why would the CIA want it to fail? These are questions that have been posed throughout history. The agents involved in the operation apparently didn't believe that Castro could be overthrown without a full-scale invasion. They didn't even believe they were gonna succeed. Was the Bay of Pigs operation a way to convince President Kennedy that there was a necessity to have an actual invasion force? Did they want it to fail spectacularly? Maybe like Guatemala, once the troops were committed, they felt, you've already in, gone this far, you got to commit the whole way. Was it goading Kennedy to try to act? Questions we don't have answers to, but interesting thoughts. The Bay of Pigs is the starting point for a long series of events that first of all, propels Cuba to a national or international stage of importance Correct. and relevance, pushes it closer to actually to Khrushchev and the USSR, and it sets off everything that eventually leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis and a bunch of other stuff.
2: Cuba became a main expert of the idealism and the ideology of the communist regime. And the success. And especially to African countries. And, uh, he was help a of hero, He was a hero. He stood up to the Americans and succeeded. And if you look at it from his own personal history, he lasted for forty years in power. Yeah, so it was from him. It was a success story, and a hell of
0: a lot of assassination attempts. Yes, we should do an episode on the failed attempts. No. Might be interesting. <laughs> Three days after the end of the Bay of Pigs on April twenty second, Kennedy ordered an investigation into what went wrong, led by General Maxwell Taylor. While the CIA also ordered a separate investigation into what went wrong. Now, the 13th of June, less than two months later, Kennedy's report was back. The Taylor Commission. It said that the feat was due to a lack of early realization of the impossibility of success due to inadequate aircraft, pilots, and air attacks. Because the U.S. needed plausible deniability, it didn't do those things. And the loss of important ships and the lack of ammunition during the attack. Of course, without the air support, and they're losing the supply ships. So they're blaming everything to lack of air superiority. The Taylor Commission, however, was criticized as being biased and more about deflecting blame from the White House rather than truly trying to understand the mistakes that occurred. Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, was actually part of the Taylor Commission as well, so maybe another reason to think there was some bias there. JFK would later say, The first advice I'm going to give my successes is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that because they were military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn he definitely was not happy about how the operation happened. The CIA's investigation eventually showed a few other things. It had nine main points. One, the CIA exceeded the capabilities of developing the project from guerrilla support to overt armed action without any plausible deniability. What does that mean? They stretched too far, had their hands tied with the whole plausible deniability thing.
2: When you go into regime change, which is a very... A harsh and big word there's so many elements that come into it that organizations are afraid to use it because there's so many unknowns and if you don't have the full support of your full capacitors you're not going to succeed and even that doesn't guarantee you anything they went for a change regime change that was not realistic and It taught them a lesson.
0: First of all, it was absurd to try to plausibly deny involvement. There were so many obvious things. when they continued and were so insistent about this ability to plausibly deny while supporting this guerrilla thing. It was just, they should have realized this. That's what the first point's about. The second point was a failure to realistically assess risks and adequately communicate information and decisions internally and with other government principles. Now, to me, the first one... Maybe you can excuse, we overjudge, we misjudge, da-da-da. Point two, I think, is inexcusable from an organization point of view. Maybe you can tell me more about this. But failure to adequately communicate information internally within your organization and to your other government agencies, that's on you. What's going on Because it's so
2: secret that you can't talk about things. So one person doesn't know what the other person is doing. And somehow someone has information that could be useful to you, but you can't talk about it. And he doesn't know that it's important for you. So... They don't share it. It comes back to 9-11 as well. Same, same kind of stuff. You'll always find it. that This is always a good, uh, a good thing to write in any report when you do an investigation, that people don't share information. That's always going to happen.
0: So you're saying that's a common reason, that lack yes, of information always. sharing
2: between, within the agency and… Always. Mm-hmm. Not that we should be proud of it, but that's an always, always going to be in any… When you do any investigation, that's always going to come up.
0: I missed a point. I knew I missed a point here. I wanted to talk about that before the invasion on january tenth, nineteen sixty one, the New York Times on the front page announced the plans that the CIA had for the covert invasion, making front page news. This is before Kennedy took office. The militia's mobilized. And now the plans are on the front page yet another reason.
2: If you're Cuban, what more proof do you need? From Fidel Castro's point of view, the information was out there. He didn't have to really dig hard. The Americans want to overthrow your government. Okay, what do I do? Who are the people who are gonna, who they're going to use? Where are they? Where are they going to come from? What ammunition do they have? What weapons do they have? Who are they going to use? Who are their supporters in the, my country? All this information he had. What day they're going to, even the day probably he would eventually he had. In advance, and even if he
0: didn't know when they were going to bomb his airfields, for instance, if you know that they're he going to do the it, planes. just move the planes. Don't he put did. them put them some random shack in the middle of nowhere. And okay, worst comes to worst, they invade, pull them out of the shack, drag them to the airfield. You're an hour late, but you still have air support because it's not destroyed. And that's what
2: he did. Yeah. So from from a Cuban point of view, from the Cuban intelligence, it would have been interesting to see how the Cuban intelligence dealt with the Bay of Pigs. And I think we'll get a different story. That was a success, as I said. It's a success, S- success story the from the point of view of the intelligence of how you understand the other side doesn't understand the reality of the situation. Again, very good.
0: The third point of the CIA's is... And
2: allows them to strategically move towards the Russians without repercussions from the Americans. Again, strategically interesting move, clever move, and something that eventually paid off for them.
0: The third point of the CIA's investigation found that there was insufficient involvement of leaders from the exiled Cubans. Fourth point was a failure to sufficiently organize internal resistance in Cuba. Yeah, well we knew this. They landed in the wrong place and they didn't build up the support, and the support that they did build up was all arrested three days before the operation.
2: If you don't have it and it's a and it's a it's a must before you even start, you mustn't you shouldn't go. Five, failure to
0: completely collect and analyze intelligence about Cuban forces.
2: Okay. It's always gonna be said.
0: Always going to be said, can always say that. We didn't know. We didn't know they moved the planes. We didn't know how much strong they were, blah, 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 blah. Six, poor internal management of communication and staff. Again, inexcusable, but I guess you're going to say they always say that when a report fails, right? Correct. Okay. Seven, insufficient employment of high quality staff.
2: It was a success before using the same people. It was a different scale, was a different... Different president. Different circumstances, different place. Different situation to deal with.
0: The CAA has often said that with a different president that they think they could have succeeded. Of course, they say that, but they don't know what would have happened on the international stage if the US did deploy things. Would Russia do? Blah, 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 blah. It's a whole game Look, of dominoes. I,
2: I would like to agree on that. If the Americans would have used American force, they would have overthrown Castro.
0: Of course, they would have. No question there. But what but would the, the Russians moment, have done? But, what not, would the world have they done? Would,
2: they would have said, would have gone to the UN and say, naughty boys. Okay, happened. Things are going to happen soon as well other places. People are going to go to the UN and say, naughty boys. Right? Right. That's not the point. You're saying Ukrainians should be worried? I am not saying anything. <laughs> I'm just saying that it happens and it will happen, and the world doesn't intervene very quickly exactly. all the time. Exactly,
0: and that's why Eisenhower knew that and why he, was, he was more experienced with that.
2: if you want to do something, you have to do it properly, yes. not half-hazard. Half if you want to go into Iraq with your forces, you have to put foots on the ground. If you want to make a change, you have foots on the ground. Working with proxies, as they did here, can only get you a certain way. And in Cuba, the proxies that they want to put, 1,500 people who a year before were, had nothing to do with military, and if some of them did, it wasn't very high, wasn't going to make a difference. Thousand five hundred is really not a lot of people. It's not
0: a lot of people. They thought there was going to be a mass even, uprising. And, and, uh, and, come on,
2: with a uh, couple with, of boats exactly. and, a, and a plane. That's that's nice, but it was the wrong decision. So yes, I agree with what he said. If they would have used, if they would have had the whole force of the American force behind them, then they can come with the with the proxies. They could be in the front. They will take care of the air. They'll take care of the ships. They will allow them to be the first to move in. They'll be seen to be Cubans. These Cubans will ask for the Americans to assist them as uh, taken over some territory. They want officially the exile government will ask the Americans to help them. And there you have legitimacy to do something. But that was not done. The legitimate government was in Cuba. The new government that they were going to put together was put in a, in a house in Florida. Clo- in Florida, closed up and had nothing to do, and nothing to say. Why? They were kept there, and if it was a success, that they should come on a plane and arrive there and take over.
0: Provided that they let the uh, Casa Nostra take all the gambling rights back in Cuba. Um,
2: (laughs) That was a different thing, because Casanova was not not involved in that. Casanova? No, he wasn't. No. (laughs) Casanova was not involved in that aspect. It was a different plan. I know. Wasn't involved in that. So, again, a lot of bad mistakes.
0: Eight. Insufficient Spanish speakers, training facilities, and material resources. Well, we basically said this. I mean, okay. if you're going
2: to do something, have Spanish
0: speakers. That's one. But again, it's
2: uh, Why does it make a difference? Because uh, if you don't have all the people who are on the beach spoke Spanish, does it make? You would have uh, does make any difference. But okay, it, it's always nice to have in it.
0: Nine lack of stable policies and or contingency plans. Well, they had contingency plans. No. They in the first part and then it was changed
2: you said earlier and it was very important to be said air supremacy
0: air supremacy
2: air supremacy that was their the plan moment initially. the moment you cannot guarantee it the plan should have taken place and you have like red lines you have red a line, certain yeah. times you have a red line and you say if i don't have that if i can't guarantee that it's a no-go there was no as far as we understand there was no place where they said no can't be done no we should stop no we have to halt no we have not achieved that they just went ahead no matter what happened they just went ahead because that's what they thought will make it happen and every time there was a problem they said ah it's not a problem let's continue disaster disaster
0: cuba and the ussr knew of the invasion ahead of time they knew the plan before the troops even involved knew of the plan they must have had double agents inside Brigade 2506, or people around them anyway.
2: Well, we talked about it. Yeah. The families, the people, the communications. All they had to read is new newspapers.
0: As we've also come to know, there were... Oh, in Washington. There were leaks inside the CIA, even, and higher-ups. Somewhere in the chain of command people knew as well. What's interesting is that reports indicate the head of the CIA, a man named Alan Dulles, knew that the USSR and Cuba knew of the plan, but went along regardless Was this more evidence that they wanted the plan to fail? The report was so damning, the CIA's report that is, that they burned most of them and only kept a few copies, which were, many years later, finally declassified. Alan Dulles and other senior CIA staff were fired by JFK, who publicly took responsibility for the failure, but in private blamed the intel that they provided him, attempting to distance himself from the failure. Famously, he said, Victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. It's part of a famous speech he gave.
2: Well, it's a famous saying. Yes.
0: The involvement of the head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, was unclear. In fact, some reports say that he was in full control, while others seem to indicate that he was mentally deteriorating at the time. Critically, he delegated much of the operation to his deputy, Bissell, as well as the coordination with the White House. Apparently, he also missed many meetings and displayed eccentric behaviors at times. So it could have been that the head of the CIA was not quite with it at the time as well. Another thing that we won't know. Years later, the Bay of Pigs became a prime example cited by psychologists for the paradigm known as groupthink syndrome. One account of the decision-making process read, At each meeting, instead of opening up the agenda to permit a full airing of the opposing considerations, President Kennedy allowed the CIA representatives to dominate the entire discussion. The president permitted them to refute each tentative doubt immediately that one of the others might express, instead of asking whether anyone else had the same doubt or wanted to pursue the implications of the new worrisome issue that had been raised. Not good.
2: It's a matter of management and how you conduct business. And obviously, Kennedy at the time was, uh, was new at his job. Yeah. And that was the price you pay.
0: Psychological studies also later identified lack of communication and mere assumption of agreement to be main causes behind the CIA and JFK's joint failure to evaluate the situation. There was no initiative to explore other options of debate of those involved, all of them just remaining optimistic and rigid in the belief that the mission would succeed no matter what. In psychological terms, this is the concept known as wishful thinking. So, wishful thinking and groupthink. They were all, ah, oh, it's gonna go great, it's gonna go great. But what if Shut up you! This is not gonna happen, immediately put down. Not even allowing contrary voices to be thought. It's a style heard. of management,
2: a style of discussion, and of course, shouldn't happen in that way.
0: Correct. The CIA and the US government spent decades denying that the US was involved. However, there were a few US pilots that were captured. The US government and CIA claimed they were mercenaries. They did, however, send a few pilots. So remember when there was those marines and this and that? A few pilots did go and help, under the understanding that if they were caught, they would be denied the fact that they were part of the U.S., and as a result, some of them were many years in Cuba, captured, or their bodies and different things, and only in 1988 did the CIA admit that U.S. citizens were involved, you know, military that is, even though the families of those who lost members there were told, but also told to keep quiet. Those who fell in the conflict received the CIA's Distinguished Intelligence Cross, which is its highest award. The CIA didn't give up on Cuba, though. JFK authorized the CIA to launch Operation Mongoose. Assassinations, increased missions to destabilize and increase influence, set off a whole series of trouble with Cuba. Cuba and the USSR, understanding that the US was quite serious in regaining control of the island, eventually led Cuba and the USSR, the Soviet Union, to solidify their relationship. Castro declaring his allegiance to communism not long after. The USSR attempted to counter the US effort by eventually stationing nuclear-carrying-capable missiles in Cuba, leading to, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you guessed it, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which almost ended the world.
2: Well, and where Kennedy actually behaved in a better way than this episode.
0: Yes, yes. Well, he had a little bit more experience. A little right.
2: bit more experience. and didn't trust the generals. Yes. Well, he
0: learned, he learned his he lesson, learned lesson well. Yes. There is an embargo by the U.S. on Cuba that partially still exists till today. Additionally, after the Bay of Pigs, Cuba became a significant player in Cold War conflicts. As we said, Castro was a figurehead, a hero for movements like his and others around the world. Cuban Americans, ever since, have had a negative view of JFK and a bit of mistrust for the government. This also was the beginning of many types of U.S. operations that began to sow the seeds of doubt for people who would trust U.S. promises to support them for different things. Finally, with the Vietnam War going on, which it was, and the failure of the Bay of Pigs, JFK felt that the U.S. needed to show power, strength. Personally, he also needed to show power and strength in the beginning of his office. He can't lose, right? There was the Berlin Wall, the Cuban Missile Crisis not long after, the Bay of Pigs, all this stuff. So he went hard into Vietnam to try to succeed and win. And for those who know Vietnam, didn't go so well. But he also went hard on the space race. So at least at least there, there was a little win for, for JFK. To the moon! We'll go to the moon! And that's the Bay of Pigs. That's the aftermath. That's what happened. What do you think?
2: What do, you, what do I think? Great success. What do you mean, what do I <laughs> For think? For the Cubans. <laughs> no, I mean I, I mean, I would like, as I said, that we, uh, we put our emphasis on, on the Americans and how a disastrous planet was, because it was. Every step basically was, was a disaster. You could say that uh, it meant well, it was a good idea, recruit people, use uh, proxies, and then deny your involvement. But you have to base this on reality of the situation on the ground, and that was never done. And that was a big failure, and therefore it was not going to succeed. They had plenty of opportunities to halt or stop or decide that it's not the right thing to do. And I don't think today it would have happened. I don't think they would have done it. I think um in those days maybe they didn't value life or people's life as much as maybe they do today. And well, I from think the point the, of view mass of
0: media of getting the names out there is so exactly, famous, it's
2: and it's yeah. it's the families and and media it would have been a different sh- scenario so okay because i didn't lose didn't use american but there were american citizens but the americans from cuban descent okay so from that point of view not good it was clever to use other countries to train the people not on america not american grounds for deniability
0: clever to do the fake pilot going into florida except get get your design right get your plane right <laughs>
2: So again, and then uh, on the UN stage, making a mistake. Well, he don't know if he knew he was wrong, but obviously so quickly being able the to be- The intel was wrong. <laughs> it was so quickly denied and, and proven that it wasn't. So,
0: Don't it, land in Castro's favorite fishing spot. Not, not only him. that, it,
2: it, it just showed that it wasn't, it was professional in maybe the eyes of the people that did it at the time, but looking back at it, it wasn't done in the professional way that you would expect it to be done. Now, that's from the American side. From the Cuban side, I'm sure they study the Bay of Pigs in their uh, schools about how to uh, go against the odds and how to use intelligence to your advantage, how to find a way to use if it's human sources, if it's electronics, if it's listening devices, if it's using uh, allies like the Russians to be on your side. And... From that point of view, the Bay of Pigs from the Cuban side was a great success, and we said it in the beginning. So I think you learn it from from both schools. One, you learn from your mistakes, and one, you learn from your successes.
0: I want to ask you, what I see here as well, with, with Kennedy especially, is global politics and other interests taking over the importance for the intel that you're gathering at the time. And I'm wondering how often or how common, or what your take is on this clash that sometimes can exist between the intelligence that's been gathered, or doing what's right by the intelligence, but then considerations that are politics or other that you have to contend with. You understand what I'm asking?
2: Maybe. Intelligence doesn't stand on its own. It stands as part of the bigger picture of the global situation. You cannot act just according to the intelligence. You have to act according to the uh, international scenario that you want to create? And does the intelligence bring into you something or, that allows you to act differently or, or tells you don't do certain things? The intelligence agencies are supposed to bring in the information. The decision of how to use it, if it's an act like that, is not the intelligence organization's decision. It's the decision maker's decision. Mm-hmm. So in the bigger role, the, the CIA would have said, yes, we can succeed. Yes, use the American forces. But from the Kennedy point of view, he would say, look, yes, I know from the intelligence point of view, you're right. If I use American forces and I use the, what you have on ground, we can succeed. But when I look at the global price I will pay, then it doesn't, it's not worth it for me.
0: But you just said 20 minutes ago or whenever we said it that you think actually it would have been worth it. And based on intelligence and things, the world would have said, ooh, bad boy, and yes, then moved on. But he,
2: yes. If he had done it the right way. Different, if he would have done played it in a different way, if he wasn't three months in, in power, okay? When you're three years in power and the people know you mean business and you do something, who's going to stand up to you? Khrushchev was in a different scenario. He was he was the big. He was already around for many. He was around already. Yeah. He knew he knew his game. Castro was just starting. Okay, so there was a lot of things that could have been done differently. Mm-hmm. Was Cuba part of the communist? Uh, not yet. Not yet. So there was gains to be made there.
0: Huge gains.
2: It and it was close to America, and they wanted wanted it to be under their influence, not under the Russian influence. The Russians saw an opportunity and they seized it. Uh, the Russians played and, it then, and then, when they tried to play the bigger game putting nuclear missiles in Cuba then the Americans decided okay this is it enough is enough this is not, I'm not prepared for that okay that's playing the big game again that's the intelligence saying don't do it but th- the bigger picture saying I have to do it and that's what I'm going to do understanding that someone's going to back down in the end but that I'm not going into the, the missile, missile crisis because there. that's that's not
0: well, it might be another episode
2: it's maybe so to answer your question if I answered it is that The decision-maker has to see the big picture. Yeah. The organization can bring the intelligence, but it also has to look at the big picture and bring to the decision-maker as well how he feels about it. And I think that's maybe a component that
0: was lacking. Yeah, exactly. It was lacking. They brought the information just for the situation, but they didn't bring the information of, okay, if the result is A, this is what the world will do, and if the result is B, this is what we think. What the world. will it do for South America? Exactly. What about other places? They didn't um, bring the other ramifications.
2: If they would have said to him, "Look, even if we do it, we're not. Uh, the Russians are not going to do this. Uh, South America is not going to fall. Yeah. No everyone's not going to get against America." Maybe they did. We don't know from Maybe. from from the papers. We don't know that. But I think that as an organization, you have to have as well. Not only the intelligence, but as well the bigger picture and understanding the bigger picture before you recommend something as well. If
0: you think about Sun Tzu, who we've mentioned earlier, and we did the episode on, of course, and you think about one of his first points in his aspect about espionage was cost. How expensive it is for armies and this and that and so expensive in the cost. Whereas a spy and this, you pay him one-tenth or one-hundredth, one-one-hundredth, and you get the information and a better result. Well, think about it. The failure at the Bay of Pigs led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. It led to uh, Kennedy pushing for the Vietnam even more. Vietnam doesn't end so well for the Americans. If you think about it in those terms, maybe if they committed more into the effort with Cuba, right, in the intel aspect, you know, committed more resources, a little bit more. But overall, and of course, this is potentially hindsight, would have saved them more in the long run.
2: If if you look at it from a different angle, if... Castro wouldn't have been labeled as a communist exactly. by, yeah. by Vice President Nixon or by the CIA.
0: Well, the CIA wanted to cooperate with him in the beginning.
2: Exactly. And they would have cooperated with him or they would allow the oil to be through the refineries and then negotiated. it. It would have been a completely different scenario. So sometimes decisions you make that you think are the right decisions from a tactical point of view, strategically are catastrophic. And this is a, a perfect example of a tactical decision that was made just to pacify certain lobbyists or certain situations, they wanted
0: money, right? It was economy. It was no, 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 no. It wasn't foreign, money. It
2: wasn't money. It wasn't. It, the beginning wasn't nothing to do with money. It was. It was. It was a game. Yeah. It was a game. Power. Game of power. And all it had to go. is said, "Okay, put uh, the oil through your refineries. Uh, let's see how we can um, continue." Uh, Castro. Let's do something to make sure Castro doesn't go and go and decide to become a uh, communist it would have changed the different. The, change the, the map. should have changed a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a decision you make changes everything. And I'll give you a recent example, just, just to put it in, in context. If you look about Obama administration in Syria, the, the fact that line. in the red line... I knew you were going red, talk about the red line. Yeah. When, when you have a certain decision... I talked about you make.
0: this yesterday as well, by the way.
2: <laughs> okay. When you make a decision, and then you, you, back, you go back on it, and then you leave a vacuum, and all of a sudden there's a new player who comes in, You change the dynamic of the whole situation. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. There was a certain claim, a certain information, and he decided to back off it. And then the Russians came in and went into Syria, made themselves part of the alliance with the Syrians, and it changed completely the dynamics of the the war, the regime, that would have been a complete different scenario. Decisions. Sometimes you make decisions you think are the right decision to not getting to save a life or to save face or to avoid something. And the the price for it is, is catastrophic.
0: Sometimes you think you're killing a tyrant in Rome to save democracy and you set off a, a chain of events that lead to emperors in Rome for several hundred years. Right. And then Lincoln dies. Right. <laughs> and then Lincoln dies. <laughs> what about hiding information from the president? Hiding information from people in decision-making positions. Like, Obviously, there's the concept of need to know, but how much transparency should there be, or is it really impossible to
2: say? First of all, everything is human, okay? So everything is possible when you're talking about people. And everything is, event. again, everything is personal. Now, you have this uh, gentleman from the CIA who was responsible for the operation. Bissell. Bissell. Is he going to say he can't do it? Is he is he going to say that all the money he got, the $12 million or the $13 million that's peanuts in today's money yeah, he's not able to do it <laughs> is he able to say the truth to the president look the people are not ready does his ego tell him that he can say that i don't think we can do it that i've i not that he's failed that he was not able to do the mission did he lie to the president by saying that they could do it did he know Wishful they couldn't thinking. do it so i wouldn't say he lied i don't think he lied but it's one man's decision and that shouldn't be when you make a decision based on one person making a decision if he's ready or not, you should listen to more people, have more ideas, especially when it comes to things like that.
0: Well, we also talked about this idea of when you're getting information, don't send out people to obtain something that you, you're you wanting. Like, go out and find how much they exactly. support me. Exactly. Because then you're setting up the failure if they don't. You because know? So then like, you're specifically because, looking for the supporters.
2: You exactly. Know? And, 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 or find a nuclear program. So you're going to find something because that's yeah, what you want to find. Exactly. Not if there is something, but find something that I want to, to find. Mm-hmm. So in this case, the CIA had to admit either they are not able to do it and that's something they didn't want to do or admit that they can do it but not really understand, not really believing they can do it. And something we didn't talk about
0: actually, we've talked about Kennedy being new as in, in, in the president, but also for the CIA, this is their first big thing with him. So they want to show off that they're capable as well, right? So it's not just him being inexperienced and new and not knowing. They also, this is the new boss in town. We want to show off to the new boss. And it's so a big that op- aspect. Yes, too.
2: and it's a big operation. And it's a lot of money, a lot of people moving from place to place and training mm-hmm. and movement and prestige and, and, and it's fun and it's gun uh, ho and we can do something and people are moving. Yeah, you know, you bring these people, where do they come from? How did they get there? You know, were they vetted? Were they checked? There's so many things that were, that was, were happening. So you're asking me, do you lie to the, to the president? No, you should never lie to the leaders. But do you say something that's not true? Sometimes you do unwillingly. We talked
0: about this, especially in Moses' episode, about being able to freely voice things that maybe the leader doesn't want to hear. Correct. So how, how critical and important is it to pose the worst case or negative scenarios when you're planning and discussing these different things? Or is that bad for morale?
2: You always have to. Have to, right? We call it like the red team. You always have someone who's saying, what if... What is going to be if something is not going to happen? What can go wrong? Uh, Where is there a problem? And you have to have people in your system who will look at the other side. Very important for any decision maker and any organization to have a unit or people who will look at the scenario and look at it differently and view their opinion. And you allow them to view the opinion. If, they, if you don't have it, it, you should. And if you have it, you should listen to them. Don't have to agree with them, but you have to allow it to happen. Well, anything else you want to say? Uh, There's so much been written on and said about this, I just don't want to repeat ourselves.
0: I'll end with a quote from J. William Fulbright, whose scholarship, the Fulbright Scholarship, was named after. To give the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba even covert support is on a par with the hypocrisy and cynicism for which the United States is constantly denouncing the Soviet Union in the United Nations and elsewhere. This point will not be lost on the rest of the world, nor on our own consciences. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening,
2: and remember... Sometimes one's success is someone's failure, and someone's failure is someone's success.
0: Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production, with original scoring and mastering by Julian Duceau. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. It really helps. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message on Facebook or shoot an email to grumpygolemproduction at gmail.com and we'll do our best to get back to you. Also, as we near the end of season one, if you have any questions for a Q&A episode you'd like for us to answer, feel free to send them our way. Until next time.